In 2007, Solace Radio began broadcasting the word of Adonai, God, to the world through times of trouble and times of blessing. To many, we became their rock and which they could build their faith in Jesus or Yeshua, plus learn the lessons and wisdoms held in the Bible or the Torah, learning life's lessons for peace, joy, all in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah. To many, we are the rock on which you stand, building your faith in Jesus and Yeshua. Salus Radio has never charged our listeners or teacher for listening or broadcasting the Word of God. All of our programming and airtime are given free of charge. No sign-up fees, no memberships, no fees at all. But we do need your help today to keep reaching the world. Our fall-winter fund drive has begun in earnest. Solace Radio's goal is $3,000. For 15 years, Solace Radio has broadcast the Word of God to the world never thinking of ourselves, and never taking a salary, just putting it all in the hands of God. Your donations and support will allow us to keep broadcasting for another year. Without your support, we may face difficult decisions in the future. Salus Radio is not a 501c3. We believe for that reason, all support and donations truly come from the heart. Your support can be in any amount, of the 195 countries in the world, Solace Radio has reached 135 of them. To donate, you can simply go to www.solaceradio.org forward slash giving. May God Adonai move your heart to support Solace Radio today so we may continue the ministry to the world. Once again, visit www.solaceradio.org forward slash giving. Your support is greatly appreciated. Shalom and thank you. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask, Lord God, that you would minister life from your word today. Father, may we grow in our understanding of your salvation, but not just with our heads, Lord, but with our hearts, in a way that would translate into practical practical influence on our lives, Lord. Lord, we want to be growing in the knowledge of Yeshua. And I pray that as we consider your word this morning, that we would increase in our understanding. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we may know what is the hope of your calling, what is the riches of your, the glory of your inheritance in the saints, Lord, and what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. Open our eyes, Lord, to see more clearly in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, we are, uh, we're continuing today in our series from Shaul's letter to the congregation in the city of Rome. 
otherwise known as the Book of Romans. And we're going to pick up really, uh, uh, we're going to pick up with chapter four today. If I go slightly longer than normal, it's because I really want to finish the chapter. It's not, it, it just doesn't work to go two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through, and but we're going to finish the chapter, but I don't think that we're really going to go too much longer than normal, So, but just so you're prepared. Two weeks ago, we, uh, we finished chapter three, where Shaul establishes the whole issue of God having made us righteous through Yeshua's sacrifice on our behalf. We find Paul using in chapter 3, particularly towards the end of the chapter, legal language to show us that salvation is not really just some sentimental act of kindness on God's part, but rather our salvation is based on the righteous requirements of a holy God being fully satisfied. In other words, as I stated it last time, God is just in justifying each and every one of us. God saving us, God forgiving us, does not represent a bypassing of his justice, but rather he is fully just in imparting his righteousness to us, even though we know that we ourselves have not been worthy of that gift. We are not deserving of his gift of righteousness. And see, what we do is because we know we're not deserving, we kind of get into this thinking where where it's we just somehow don't see it as a just thing for God to make us for God to justify us. But God, but, but Shaul is telling us in legal language that God is just in justifying us. So the point is, we don't have to camp out on the issue of, well, I'm really not deserving of this blessing of salvation. No, you're not. Neither am I. Neither is any human being that has ever lived except for Yeshua himself. We are not deserving, but that's the whole point of what Paul is trying to lay out here as he shows salvation to be purely a gift from God received by faith. Now, in chapter 4, he continues on with this idea, but he takes things in a little bit different direction. In chapter 4, Paul begins to give a bit of an historical perspective of salvation using Abraham as an example. He uses Abraham as an example because when we understand God's dealings with Abraham, it's meant to help us see how God deals with us on this issue of righteousness. Abraham provides us, I think, with a pattern for understanding how it is that God can take unworthy and undeserving human beings and actually make us righteous. So let's pick up at the first verse, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. As Shaul begins this chapter, once again, he's anticipating a question or a possible objection to what he's written so far. And that objection would be from rabbinic thinking, rabbinic Jewish thinking, which believed before the Torah was actually given to Moses, uh, rabbinic thinking saw or believed that Abraham perfectly kept God's law 
as the basis for his righteousness before God. That was the, the position of rabbinic Jewish thought. Of course, that's not a biblical idea, but that is what rabbinic thinking held to. So what Paul does is he himself asks the question, okay, what about Abraham? We're talking about this salvation being unmerited, being undeserved. Well, what about Abraham? Did Abraham really come into a righteousness based on works of his own goodness? Then verse 2, he's saying that if Abraham's righteous, if Abraham's righteousness came from his own works, he would then have grounds for boasting before God. Paul's pointing out here a clear inconsistency in rabbinic thinking, saying you cannot come before God based on your own works. Now then, Paul appeals to the Torah. Verse 3, let's take a look. For what does the Scripture say? And he's speaking specifically here of the Torah. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is a quote, of course, from Genesis 15, 6, to show that the Torah itself disputes the idea of Abraham being righteous based on his good works. It it says he believed God. How was Abraham justified? He believed God. The idea is Abraham placed himself in an attitude of trust in and acceptance of the blessing of God. And we see here once again, as we, we, we brought out the very first week of the series, remember when, when, it, when, when Shaul talks about faith here and throughout the, the letter to the Romans, the, the idea behind that one word faith is trustful surrender, trustful surrender. So Abraham's trusting of God, not trusting in what he could do, his trusting of God, his surrender to God was what made it possible for God to bestow righteousness upon Abraham. Now, this idea of trust is so important here because sometimes you may hear believers say something like, our faith moves the hand of God to work in our lives. But I think a better way to see this issue would be our faith invites God and even frees God to move and act in our lives. Remember, faith has to do with trusting things over to God. So our faith frees God and invites God to move and act in our lives as we would take our hands off the the situations of our lives where we're seeking the blessing of God. God has access to move in our lives when we stop trying to make things happen and we submit or we trust our lives into God's hands. It's it's kind of like, you know, let's say I needed to get a ride somewhere and I, I asked Dan Tomberlin, I said, Dan, can you give me a, give me a ride someplace? And, uh, uh, you know, he, he says, yeah, I'd be glad to drive you. And I said, then, but, but to tell you the truth, I'd like to sit in the driver's seat and I want to have my hands on the steering wheel, if that's okay. But I want you to drive me. <laughs> Doesn't work, does it? See, until we get out of the driver's seat and let the other person have the wheel, we're still in control. And the other person really is not free to do what we've asked them to do. Even, even, even with, with Dan's good intentions, he can't drive me until I give him access to the wheel and the driver's seat. Well, it's similar with us trusting our lives 
into God's hands. Our faith, our trusting, our taking our hands off is what gives God access to begin to move in our lives in greater and greater ways, with greater and greater blessing. As Abraham trusted his salvation and trusted God's promised blessings totally into God's hands, that trust was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Abraham did not earn righteousness, but it was accounted to him. It literally means that righteousness was put into Abraham's account. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith or his trust is accounted for righteousness. His point is very simple. If a person works and does something with an expectation of payment or return, the wages do not come to that person as a gift of grace. It's more of a debt. So when we go to work, we have an expectation that our boss is going to pay us something, okay? It's not, well, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to pay you. No, it's owed. That's, that's the way things work in our, in our society. And Paul is saying, if a man's works earn salvation, then really God is being put in a position of actually being indebted to man. God would owe salvation being obligated by the good works of the person being obligated to give man salvation. Well, he brings this up, I think, to show how foolish this kind of thinking really is because the concept of a salvation based on works would leave God owing man for what we've done. Really to think that way, where God becomes obligated to reward the good works of man, it reverses the roles of the creator and his creation. God would become indebted to his own creation, while man who was created to give glory and honor to God and to live in a stance of humility and thanksgiving and praise unto God, if man earns his own salvation by the good things that we do, then he no longer needs, we no longer would need to take on that stance of gratitude and thanksgiving and dependence on God. You see, it reverses the whole role, the, 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 the whole, the role of creator and created. So Paul is pointing out how a works righteousness mentality goes so far as to violate God's created order with the creator becoming indebted to his creation, as ridiculous as that concept would be. Now, there's a very powerful statement that, that is made in verse 5 here that I think really sets the tone for the rest of the chapter and, and really for uh, one of the key foundational principles that we find in this chapter. He refers to God as justifying the ungodly. God who justifies the ungodly. When you think about what this is really saying here, it's just an incredible statement because the word ungodly describes someone who is destitute of reverence towards God in any way. That describes every one of us, folks. 
at least before we came into the kingdom. That describes every one of us. We were ungodly. We were destitute of any kind of goodness in and of ourselves. He's saying here that God has the capacity to totally reverse that person's condition of unrighteousness. That's an amazing thing. God has the power to take someone who is totally lacking in any level of goodness and to make us righteous in a way that fully satisfies his holiness and fully satisfies his justice. That's what salvation is about. God justifying not the good, not the worthy, because none of us is good in and of ourselves and none of us is worthy. It's about God justifying the ungodly. That's the power of salvation in Yeshua. So righteousness can come only when God, man's creator, takes an unrighteous human being and imparts righteousness to that person. So who can partake of this righteousness? The one who does not try to earn it or do anything to put ourselves in a position to be deserving of it. But rather, we put our trust and confidence in God, who alone has the power to take a person who is an enemy of God and to make us righteous. If you, you know, if you just take time sometime to think about, or regularly, I would suggest, think about the fact, I was an enemy of God. I was against God. I had no goodness in and of myself. And because God offered this gift, that he gave me the grace to say yes to. He's changed all that. I was an enemy of God, but now I'm his son. Now I'm his daughter. Now I'm his child. Folks, these are, these are, these are things that need to get into our spirit, need to get into our heart. So Paul says that that person's faith, his trust in the power of God, a trust demonstrated by not striving to earn righteousness himself, that it's, he says it's that person's faith that will be accounted to him for righteousness. All right, then verses six through eight, we're not going to read these, but Shaul quotes from David and the Psalms where David writes of how blessed is the one who receives righteousness apart from works. Why does he quote David here? Well, he's really hitting the same issue over and over again, making it absolutely clear from the Bible itself, from the Torah, from the writings, from the prophets, making it absolutely clear from all of scriptures that salvation has always been understood as being an issue of faith. In the entire history of God's dealings with his covenant people, there has never been a time when salvation came through man's works. It has always been an issue of faith. And that's why he quotes David here. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith 
which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Again, um, and, and one of the things I love about Paul and his writings, especially in the book of Romans, which is part of what makes this book such a brilliant writing, in addition to being an anointed piece of writing, is that he just anticipates all the possible questions and objections. Well, he's anticipating another question here, and the question would be, this blessedness that you're talking about that comes from salvation, uh, is, is this only for those who are circumcised? And of course, the reason for the question is simple. So far, he's used as examples Abraham and David. Well, both Abraham and David were circumcised, and so one might try to make the case that circumcision was a key here in relation to their salvation. So the question is, how does this righteousness by faith issue relate to those who are not circumcised? In other words, those who who are from the nations, the Gentiles. Well, Shaul points out, that Abraham's faith for righteousness was at the time of his life when he had not yet been circumcised. So he starts there. Now, verse 11, he starts to explain circumcision. He calls circumcision, he first, he refers to it as the sign of circumcision. In other words, it's an outward sign that points to something else. So circumcision was not the basis for Abraham's righteousness. It was the outward sign that pointed to righteousness that God had credited to Abraham because of his faith. It's an outward sign of the righteousness that he had received by trusting God at a time in his life when he had not yet been circumcised. And the result of Abraham's faith was that he might be a spiritual father of all those who believe, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether Jew or Gentile. So circumcision was the covenant sign that was to give visible confirmation of the fact that Abraham's faith had been the basis for making him righteous. Now, verse 12, he's saying that God was seeking a people who would not simply trust in being circumcised as the basis for receiving God's righteousness. But God was seeking a people who would walk in the steps of faith in which Abraham himself walked. A people who would go beyond simply the act of the outward act of circumcision and instead to actually walk in the same faith that Abraham demonstrated at a time when he himself was not yet circumcised. So, The important thing for believers is not circumcision, but walking in the steps of faith that characterized the life of Abraham. Everything Shaul has said thus far in this chapter is for the sake of making this point that works are not to be the basis for our salvation. Circumcision is not the basis for being right with God. The only thing that can be the basis for our righteousness is our faith, our trusting in our salvation into his hands. Let's continue to read. Verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect or nullified. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, There is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith 
that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure or certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay, first of all, what's meant by this phrase, heir of the world? It says the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Well, it refers to what was expected as, as being the worldwide dominion of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come, he would literally rule and reign from his throne in Jerusalem. And, and uh, uh, it's a literal kingdom of worldwide dominion. We believe that will take place when Yeshua returns in the second coming. And Abraham is pictured here, though, as the heir of the world. In other words, it was, and, and the, the idea here is that it was Abraham's descendant, the Messiah, who would rule the world. So, this promise of world dominion would not be through the keeping of Torah, but through faith. He's continuing with the same point over and over again. And then he, he explains simply, if keeping the Torah is the basis for the promise of salvation, then it does away with the principle of faith as being our foundation. Now, he says, if it's based on works, the promise is made of no effect or the promise is nullified. It's very important that he uses the word promise in describing salvation here. The idea of promise here is very similar to the idea of grace. See, a promise depends completely on trust in the one who has made the promise. So he's saying, if works are a part of our earning salvation, then it depends on us and not God. And therefore, it's no longer considered to be a promise. Now, verse 15, he states in practical terms why it is that keeping the Torah cannot be the basis for salvation. Why? Because the Torah has no ability to make anyone righteous. It can only make us more aware of our sin. Remember, we've talked about the principle of the ministry of the law. The, and, and that's described actually in the phrase here, the law brings about wrath. The ministry of the law is that it brings to light our unworthiness and leaves us under the judgment of God, under the wrath of God. That's why he writes, the law brings about wrath. He doesn't say the law brings about righteousness because the law doesn't produce righteousness in man. Keeping the Torah cannot produce a true righteousness before God. In fact, if we're trying to be righteous by keeping the Torah, condemnation will always be present in our lives because that's what the ministry of the law produces. The harder we try to do what's right, the more we want to do what's right and try to keep all the rules just right, the more we see our own shortcomings and inability to keep Torah to perfection. The result is condemnation, sense of failure, sense of unworthiness, and all the things that go along with that. So that's what he's saying here. All right, verse 16. Let me just read that again because it's a very important verse we're going to focus on for a few moments. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all of the seed not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's just laying out a very clear picture here. Salvation must be through our trusting 
in the goodness of someone else. That's the bottom line of, with grace, with the concept of grace. Trusting in the goodness of someone else, not trusting in the goodness of ourselves. If our trust is in someone else, then we're not depending on our own works. But if we're trusting in our own works, then it's not grace that's the basis of the promise. If we are trusting rather than working for something, then it's purely a gift. It's grace. Shaul wants us to see this clearly. Now, we can draw from this verse something very powerful and I think liberating for our own lives. He says, this salvation is of faith, meaning it's a salvation based on trusting in someone else. So it's of faith so that it might be according to grace. See, if it were trust, if, if we're trusting rather than working for something, it's purely a gift. It's grace. And here's what we need to see clearly. As long as God's salvation and blessings are based on grace, and therefore no one can earn it, that means that no one has any greater access to God's promises than you do. No matter who you are, no matter how ordinary you may feel your life is. It says here that the promises of, the promises of salvation are meant to be sure or certain to all of the seed of Abraham, meaning all who follow his steps of faith, all who are trusting for the blessing of salvation. It's a salvation of grace so that the promises might be certain for everyone who is simply willing to believe and trust. Well, the only way salvation can be certain is if it does not depend on our natural ability to earn it. See, if our righteousness is key to our salvation, the only thing that's certain is at some point we're going to fall short, at some point we're going to mess things up, and this is Paul's point. Salvation depends on the faithfulness and goodness of God, and that's why it's certain. We can know this, that it's absolutely certain. But let me tell you, we can, we can know the theology of this and yet stumble on the practical side of it. We can know theologically that, well, yes, I know that my salvation doesn't depend on me. It depends on God. And yet, we look around at others we see in the body of believers, and we think, well, surely this one is more worthy than I am to receive. Surely that one is more worthy than I am. Because, see, we're aware of our shortcomings. We're not necessarily aware of theirs. And so we think other people are more worthy. Don't get pulled into the trap of looking at other believers and thinking, this one is more spiritual than I am, or that one is more gifted than I am, or this one is, 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 is smarter than I am, or understands these things better than I do. Any other comparison that leaves us lacking, don't get pulled into that. Because the devil will use those kinds of negative comparisons that we make between ourselves and others to try to convince us that we could never experience the fullness of salvation to the degree that we see others experience it, because after all, you're not worthy, they are. And we buy into it, folks. And so we think, well, they've got this degree, or they've been in ministry for years, or fill in the blanks, any number of things by which we, we decide that others are more worthy of the blessing of salvation. And folks, I'm telling you, when we think that way, we will settle for less than what God has in store for us as his people. 
Because you are just as worthy as anyone else because it's all of grace. That's his idea here. See, as long as the promise is according to grace, where we are trusting God to make us righteous, if you are willing to believe and trust in this gift rather than trying to earn it, then according to this verse, the promises of salvation are as certain to you as they are to anyone else. No one is more qualified than anyone else to receive God's promises. No one is more deserving to receive the blessing of God than anyone else. Let's you know, just take, for example, a name that we, we're all aware of. Let's say, if Paul Wilbur can be more confident in God's promises than you because he's an anointed worship leader, then salvation is not of grace. Do you understand? If Billy Graham can be more confident in God's promises because he's this evangelist who God's used to, to bring millions of people to the knowledge of Yeshua, if he can be more confident in the promises of God, then salvation is not of grace. But if it is a gift, and if it is of grace, that means no one is more deserving than anyone else to receive the fullness of God's promises and blessings. We've got to take this, this truth very, very personally and stop our human reasoning as to, to why we can't be victorious in our walk, uh, uh, as victorious as someone else we may observe who in our thinking may be more spiritual than we are or something like that. See, here's the bottom line, folks. If you are willing to build the foundation in your life of relationship with God, relationship with God through prayer, through worship, through the word of God. If you are willing to build that foundation, then beloved, no one is better equipped to be victorious over sin than you are. No one is better able to hear God's voice than you are. No one is more able to stand strong in the midst of trials and difficult times than you are because it's all of grace. Because God has provided a salvation by which everyone can walk in the certainty of the promises that he's made for life and godliness. It says here, the promise is meant to be certain to all of those who will live by faith. Now, there's a difference between saying it's certain from the perspective of God being faithful versus saying that it's automatic. Doesn't mean that it's automatic. What it means is, if we will give ourselves to the kind of lifestyle that nurtures deeper relationship with God, it is certain that our faith is, is, is sufficient to take hold of all of the blessings that he's promised, of everything he's promised for life and godliness, because the certainty is based on him, and it's not based on our own ability to be deserving of it. Okay, let's, let's continue on. Verse 17. As it is written, and he's quoting God speaking to Abraham, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Shaul quotes from Genesis 17.5, where Abraham is spoken of as a father of many nations, And Shaul interprets this as meaning that Abraham is the spiritual father of all believers, but also that he was the natural father of Israel, of the Jewish people. Now, 
Verse 17 can be a little confusing in how the wording comes out in English, but let me, let me give you the basic idea here. In God's eyes, Abraham was the father of multitudes before he ever had a child. You, you follow the principle. God sees the end from the beginning. Okay? God sees things before they, before they happen. Now, this introduces a very important principle. And again, which is that God sees something before it actually becomes visible reality. God sees it as reality before it manifests on this earth as reality. God saw Abraham as the father of multitudes before it ever became a visible reality. So God expressed this to Abraham, and Abraham chose to believe what God said to him. Now, why did Abraham believe God? Because of the very nature of God. He is the God who has the power to make alive what was otherwise dead. Somehow, you know, and I don't, we don't really know, we don't get a detailed picture of how Abraham developed this trust in God, but somehow Abraham realized this truth. He is the God who brings, who, who, who gives life to the dead. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were childless. Sarah's womb was dead. And yet having children was the key to the promise to Abraham coming to pass. So now Paul begins to explain what Abraham did seem to understand about God. Again, first, God gives life to the dead and God calls things that do not yet exist as though they did exist. Now, let's consider this in context. What were those things that did not exist that God spoke of as if they did exist. Abraham's offspring through Sarah. That's what it's talking about. So, because the power of life is in God's hands, and certainly in his words and in God's proclamations, God could speak of that life that was not yet visible, meaning Abraham and Sarah's son. He could speak of it as something that was already accomplished, that was already a reality. And so the verse says, God who gives life to the dead and calls things that do not exist as though they did. Why can God do this? Because he is the source of life and therefore he can give life to what is otherwise dead. Now, how does that relate to us? And what does this allow for in our own walk of faith? I mean, there are some who would teach, and I don't believe that it's right teaching, that we can just indiscriminately confess everything we want. Well, I just call that into being. I'm calling, calling that which is not as though it were. It's completely taking the verse out of context. What does this allow for in our own walk of faith? I believe it means that we can take any clear promise of God and speak of it as if it were reality before we see it. I think that's what, that's the context here. When God gives us a clear promise for our lives, God is the one who promised it, and he is faithful. As God speaks something, his faithfulness is so certain that we, in trust for him, can speak of those things he has promised as if it were already done. And this is a very important part of the practical side of our walk of faith. Our confession of God's word, our confession of God's promises is a very important thing. It has a very practical impact. We're to understand we're speaking the word of, of, of the promise of God as, we're, as, as if sowing a seed. 
The word is like a seed that when we speak it, it's, it's sown in the ground of our hearts. The result of sowing the seed of God's word is that faith will grow in the ground of our hearts as we meditate on that word, as we speak in agreement with that word of God. Now, Paul goes on to describe the nature of the faith of Abraham. Because of the fact that God had said to Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. Because God had said this to Abraham, it was appropriate for Abraham to speak it and proclaim what God himself had promised. Well, how did he do that? Remember in Genesis 17, 4, it says that God changed Abram's name to Abraham or Avraham. Avraham means father of multitudes or father of many nations. God said, because I have made you a father of multitudes... So realize something. Every time Abraham stated his own name, he was saying, Ani Avraham, I'm a father of multitudes. Talk about positive confession. There, there it is right there. He's confessing the word of God over his life. He's confessing the promise of God, the name that God gave to him. Every time he stated his name, even before he had children, he was proclaiming the promise of God for his life. I am a father of multitudes. God said, I have made you a father of many nations. Therefore, I call myself Avraham, father of multitudes. God has spoken that word to my life. I trust what God has said. So this verse about calling things that do not exist as though they did, it does not give us the right to just indiscriminately decide to confess things into existence. That's, that's not a right teaching. At the same time, it, I believe we do need to get into the habit of speaking much more in line with what God has said and speaking in agreement with the word of God and the promises of God, even when it may look ridiculous, even when it may look unreasonable, speaking in agreement with the word of God. One person, I was listening to a message a few weeks ago, and he made a great statement. He said, we need to spend less time listening to ourselves and more time talking to ourselves. And he meant talking to ourselves with the word of God. We need to listen to ourselves less and talk to ourselves more. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 18. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. All right, here we see the process for faith growing in our lives. Very simple. Natural hope was against believing these promises, but Abraham had an expectation that was based on his hope in God. The idea here is that his situation, of course, was beyond hope, humanly speaking. But Abraham rested in the hope given to him through the promise of God. His resting in the promise produced in him a trust that defied the natural circumstances. He trusted God to do this based on the hope stirred in him by that promise, so shall your descendants be. So look at the pattern here. The promise of God stirs hope that defies the natural reality that we may be experiencing at that time. We see it, we, we go through certain natural realities where it looks pretty bad. We get a promise from God. That promise stirs hope in our hearts. That hope becomes the basis for believing or trusting that God really will do what his word says he'll do. Understand, hope precedes faith. 
That's why one of the, the most deadly attacks of the enemy against believers is to try to draw us into the place of hopelessness. Well, I just, yes, I believe God, but I just can't see things ever getting better. Well, then you're not believing God. See, you've got to get out of that stance of hopelessness if we're going to believe God. The enemy always wants us to, to, to get hopeless about things. We've, all, we've got to be very diligent to guard against hopelessness because as long as we feel hopeless, we will not have the ability to believe or to trust God in faith. And this is so important because, as we can see in this verse, there's actually a pattern that's presented here for our walk of faith. Just consider the key words here. It says, Abraham believed in order that he might become according to what God had spoken. Obviously, there are words in between, but I'm drawing out the key words here to show you the pattern. Abraham believed in order that he might become according to what God had spoken. So God gives promises. Those promises are certain, but they're not automatic. Our faith is crucial for seeing the words go from the point of promise to fulfillment. Remember, in Hebrews, it talks about that the word word of God did not profit Israel in the wilderness because they didn't mix it with faith. Same principle for us. God gives us a promise. We are to receive that word and hold on to it and pray it and speak it. Hopelessness tells us that the promises of God are not believable. The promises of God are not realistic. The promises of God are not trustworthy. That's how hopelessness speaks. And so we've got to guard our hearts and guard the words of promise that God gives to us. Abraham believed in order that he might become according to what God had spoken. Now, now let me just let you in on something that I think we see a pattern in the Bible all through the scriptures. And, and I would attest to it from my own life and the life of just about everybody I know. There's usually a good deal of time between the promise and fulfillment, and we've got to get used to that. We think, God's given me this word, this promise. We think tomorrow, sometimes, but not usually. I just, you know, and it's amazing because we don't learn the lesson too easily. I mean, after 30 plus years, I still, you know, I get these, you know, maybe some words, some promise, and I'm thinking, okay, when, Lord? And he said, I just gave it to you. Come on, you know. Do something with it. Nurture the promise. So it's, there's usually going to be a passing of time. We've got to get used to that. But guard our hearts. Don't let that hopelessness come in. Oh, it's just not realistic. If God said it, it doesn't have to be realistic. It's true. So Abraham had to believe that word in order for the word to come to fulfillment. Okay, verse 19. And we're going to finish this here. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Very simple here. Paul, again, is continuing to explain the process of walking in faith. Abraham's age and the deadness of Sarah's womb did not keep him from trusting. Verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. The word waver means to stagger as you go back and forth between two opinions. To stagger as you go back and forth between two opinions. So Abraham did not allow unbelief to divide his thinking between the two sides of things. God gives us a promise 
always there will be two possible, at least two possible opinions related to the promise. But let's just say two general sides. Side number one, God said it, therefore I choose to believe it. Opinion number two, God said it, but it's too unreasonable for me to be able to to believe it and hold on to it. Well, with Abraham, the promise and the visible reality that appeared impossible, Abraham did not allow unbelief to divide his thinking regarding that promise. Now, this gives us a very practical definition for the, the, the word unbelief. Unbelief speaks of the tendency to divide our thinking between spiritual truth and natural truth, with the result being the natural truth remains more real to us than the spiritual truth or the word of promise. Unbelief speaks of the tendency to divide our thinking between spiritual truth and natural truth, with the result being the natural truth remains more real and more believable to us than the spiritual truth or the word of promise. And so we've got to be alert against this. We've got to guard against unbelief. When, when, when God gives you a word of promise, when you're seeking him in some area for some breakthrough, whatever, be alert to those thoughts that come in that tell you how unrealistic it is that God's going to come through. You've got to get rid of that stuff. We can't, we can't allow that, that, those thoughts to dwell within our hearts. We've got to give undivided attention to the things that God says. Friends, especially in the times we're living in today, we have got to give such undivided attention to the word of God, to the promises of God for this age as well as for the age to come. So, so important. It says Abraham was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He took a a stance of praise and thanksgiving towards God that was key to strengthening his faith, giving glory to God continually. This is very much related to keeping hope stirred within us. Otherwise, what happens? The impossible circumstances will just dominate our thinking, and that will become realism to us. Well, I'm just being realistic. No, we're just being unbelieving. Giving glory to God is such a key. Giving glory to God when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. Giving glory to God when things look good and when things look terrible. Giving glory to God. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 21. And being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. This phrase, fully convinced, is so important. Remember, unbelief seeks to divide us in our thinking between the spiritual and the natural side of things. But if we'll give our attention to God's word, rather than our mind being divided between the spiritual and natural realities, see, God's word has this, 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 this power, this supernatural life in it. And so God's word bring, has the ability to bring us into a place of being convinced of the hope that's at the heart of God's promise. So instead of being divided between the two sides, God's word actually has that, that capacity to convince our hearts. That's why I say meditate on the word constantly. Be confessing, be speaking the word, be speaking in agreement with the word all the time. Because that word, it may just seem like it's, it's, it's wrote to you, but I'm telling you, the word of God is living and powerful. And it can create, it, it brings life to our spirits. And, and it has the capacity to convince us over to that side of being undivided in our hearts. Being convinced of the hope 
that's at the heart of God's promise. So instead of being divided between the two sides, God's word convinces us and draws us over to the place where we can believe and trust. Now, we don't know, you know, how many words did Abraham have from God? The one we know of is, so shall your descendants be. Who knows? You know, I mean, there were, I'm sure, several others that we can see, but those were the things that Abraham just kept focusing on. And listen, we know it wasn't just a month. It wasn't six months. It wasn't a year. It was quite a few years before he had that child or before Sarah had that child. So he's an example for us. All right. Verse 22. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Yeshua, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Okay, faith was the basis for Abraham's righteousness. And these these things about Abraham being found righteous, they were written so that we would realize that the basis for our righteousness is to be the same as for Abraham's righteousness. It's the same process. What is the basis for our righteousness? Believing, trusting our salvation in the fact that Yeshua, who was delivered up for our offenses, has now been raised up from the dead. This, this is a major statement here because Paul is using this theme of life from the dead to show a parallel between Yeshua, Abraham, and ourselves. We, we, we put our trust in God who raised Yeshua from the dead and the same, in the same way, God takes us who were spiritually dead in sin. He takes, he makes us righteous. He raises our, up our lives from that condition of spiritual death. Paul is tying all of these things together in his analogy. Sarah's womb was dead. God brought life out from death. Yeshua was offered to die for our offenses. God raised him out, up out of death into resurrection life. Paul says this is on behalf of our justification, meaning we who were dead in sin and unrighteousness, we experience the same life from the dead experienced in these other examples that Paul's giving us here. Our lives actually become examples of and testimonies of life from the dead in the same way that Yeshua was raised from death to life, in the same way that Sarah's womb was dead, but transformed by a miracle of God to produce life. We're to see that just as God made Abraham a father of many nations, just as God uh, brought life from Sarah's dead womb, just as God raised up Yeshua from death, God has raised us up out of death into his glorious life. It's not by our works. It's not by our striving. Anything we can do from ourselves, it's nothing less than the power of life that proceeds from God, who alone is the source of life. This completely takes it out from our ability to make righteousness a reality in our lives, friends. Paul is making the point absolutely clear. Abraham's life provides us with a model that shows us that our righteousness is an issue of nothing less than God making alive that which was dead. Salvation is about life proceeding from God to touch mortal man and to overrule the power of death. So in the same way, 
that God could say to Abraham, I've made you a father of many nations. He says to us, I have made you a new creation through the perfect righteousness of Yeshua himself. I've done a work of life and righteousness in you that's real. And in fact, it's as real as the son that I brought forth from Sarah's dead womb. So going back to the question that Paul opened the chapter with, What then shall we say, that Abraham is found according to the flesh? Well, his answer is absolutely nothing came by his works of the flesh. It came from God, who alone is the source of life from the dead. He's the source of life itself. And and, and the only way anyone can have access to this salvation is by trusting in him who gives life to the dead, realizing that what we need, each and every one of us in our own lives, is nothing short of God taking us from that place of spiritual death into spiritual life. And Shaul is driving his point here that salvation is nothing less than a life from the dead situation. And, the only, and, and only the very source of life himself can accomplish this salvation. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that uh, you would enlighten our hearts on how these truths are to affect us and impact us practically. Father, each of us is in different places in our walk with you. And yet, Lord, there's none of us who does not need that work of life from the dead, daily working in us, daily manifesting itself in our lives. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to see these issues clearly. Father, I ask that you would bring us into a new place, Lord, in terms of a walk of faith, a walk of victory a walk of, of, of just seeing the promises of God over and above the natural realities that we may face. And Father, in these challenging times that we're living in, we ask for each and every one of us just a, a, an abundant grace from God for uh, moving forward in this walk, Lord, moving forward in your victory. We thank you and we praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Stay tuned to Solace Radio.